Travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. A nation of islands off Asia's Pacific coast, Japan includes the four home islands of Hokkaido, Honshu, Shikoku, and Kyushu, which most travelers are familiar with, as well as nearly 7,000 more, mostly volcanic islands that stretch over 3,000 kilometers northeast to southwest. Comparatively, the area occupied by Japan is slightly smaller than the U.S. state of California, and nearly the entire landmass is made up of these four primary islands. But with towering mountains and almost 30,000 kilometers of coastline, Japan is certain to harbor hundreds, if not thousands, of hidden gems that most travelers have never dreamt of. Today, we're going to discover a few of them. I'm Trevor Ranges in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and with me is my co-host, Scott Coates. Scott, where are you at today? Hey, man, I'm in my home office in Bangkok, as I am almost for all these episodes, and I'm really excited we're doing this one. And about lesser-known places, you and I were thinking about countries and thinking, what about all the places that we haven't heard of, people haven't heard of? So let's find an expert. And you put the word out and thought of uh, an ex-colleague of ours, Mark, who's lived there a long time. And yeah, we're going to dive into it. But before we get there, have you been to lesser-known places, or have you been to most of the major places, Trevor, in Japan? Have you have you heard of Tokyo? I've been there. I think I'm familiar with that place. Yeah, yeah. No, but again, you know, Tokyo is such a massive city, and I remember. I don't know whether it was one of our favorite watering holes or something, but I used to stop in Tokyo on layovers between Bangkok and on Hawaii, and I'd stay for a couple of days and just kind of explore. And it's such a fascinating city, you know. It's one of the great cities yeah. of the world, and I think there there's a lifetime worth of like little hidden bars down in alleyways and stuff like that that are that are pretty crazy and pretty interesting and and really something else, you know. Like Japan is very distinctive culture. So no, I haven't been beyond Tokyo. I've loved Tokyo. I've always wanted to go to places like Kyoto um, because of the history and, and Hokkaido because of the snow monkeys, I guess that's where they are, but snow and, you know, good food. And yeah, Japan's got a lot going on for it. I just haven't had the luxury of getting to explore it much. How about you? I've been lucky enough to go quite a number of times now, five or six times, but mostly the main sites, Tokyo numerous times, uh, Nara, an old uh, capital outside of Kyoto, Kyoto a couple times, Osaka. And then I did get up to the Nagano area for a couple of days, went mountain biking there. And then I went to a town called Matsumoto and checked out mm. some art galleries and some craft breweries, which is pretty cool. So yeah, I mean, Japan is one of those places I think everyone loves when they go. Everything is different from other places in Asia. It's clean, it's organized. It's polite. Technology's cool. The trains are fast. It's it's just awesome. But what I'm really craving next is cycling some lesser known areas, spending a couple months in a small town, and uh, mm. looking at the map we're going to talk about is is just bouncing around place to place. So yeah, I really am interested in going to the lesser known places. Yeah, I think uh, Mark should have some really good insight for us. Uh, before we bring him in, we'd just like to thank our patrons. Every other week, we have a special patron-only episode or video. Um, you can go to our website, talktravelasia.com, or you can go to patreon.com to donate to the show. Uh, we 
produce the show and, and put it together just as a hobby. Um, but the, the, the costs do add up. So we really appreciate any help you can give donate as little as a dollar a month to enjoy our bonus content, um, which has been pretty fun putting together. Uh, we recently shared an episode about the development in Bangkok and, uh, and CMRI up here in Cambodia, just because like, the change happens quickly here uh, COVID or not uh, these cities keep growing and evolving and and we shared our insight uh, to our patrons uh, recently and we love to do that to thank them for helping us out on the show so uh, why don't we bring Mark in yeah our guest today Mark Olgeen is an experienced senior executive in the tourism, hospitality, and wine and spirits industries, having managed multiple offices and properties throughout Asia, including Japan, Hong Kong, China, and Singapore. Nowadays, Mark serves as the president of Exo Travel Japan, a destination management company offering tours to international visitors from around the world that Scott and I know well, having been colleagues of Mark's in Thailand and Cambodia, respectively. Today, we welcome Mark from Yokohama, Japan. How you doing today, Mark? Doing great. Thanks. Glad to see you guys. It's been a while. Yeah, it's always good to catch up. So we're glad that you could come on the show and shed some light on Japan. Uh, but before we get to that, why don't you share with our listeners who don't know you as well, where you're originally from and what first brought you to Asia? Well, I'm from Arizona, of all places, um, the desert. And I came to Japan 40 years ago. Can you believe it? Uh, 1982. Oh, wow. On vacation, summer vacation uh, during university. And I just, you know, it was just the opposite of where I was from and the fact it's so green here. And it's interesting because the guy who invited me was the son of a Buddhist priest. And his hometown is a place called Koyasan, which is this ancient Buddhist village at the top of this high mountain in the western part of Japan. And I lived in a temple for two years. And it was just just ex the opposite extreme of what I was used to. And it, and it was like, wow, this is so cool that, you know, I my whole life changed from that point. So it was just wild. Were you living as a monk or did you just happen to live at the temple? I just happened to live at the temple. And it's interesting. So, you know, you would think that from the outside, these guys live very strict monk-type lives. But in fact, we were having steak and um, all kinds of good food and, and alcohol in, in the back of the house all the time. So it was just like, okay, just the opposite. I shouldn't be saying those things, but that's reality. <laughs> so when did you decide that you thought, okay, I'd like to live in Japan long-term and kind of turn pro there? Yeah, well, I after spending vacation here, I went back and I was determined I wanted to study Japanese. So then I took a year at school. I think I took two years. And I qualified for an exchange program. So I came back like a year and a half later as an exchange student. So I spent a, I spent a year in Kansai in, in Osaka as an exchange student. It was great. I did the homestay thing and everything. And I I lived with this really nice family who introduced me to sukiyaki and I fell in love with it. And they felt like they had to feed it to me quite often because I liked it so much. Later did I, I later I found out that sukiyaki is quite expensive for Japanese to eat. So, you know, I was like, wow, I was spoiled. Um, but, uh, you know, that's that kind of what happens. Something gets lost in translation and, you know, one way or another, you 
I think in this case, accidentally take advantage of it. But uh, that was the start. And, you know, I studied, uh, went back, studied again, finished university. And so I had a minor in, in Japanese language. And I used that to work for initially for a couple of Japanese companies, which then brought me back um, to Japan for work the first time in 1990. So I, wow. yeah. So then I've been back and forth about six times total. Um, so I've lived here, yeah, about six times now. And it's interesting. I mean, you've worked in hospitality a bit, and I remember you and I talking about wine and uh, some fashion things as well. But uh, what what brought you to get involved in the travel industry? And was it travel because it was in Japan? It was an opportunity in Japan? Because it seems like you've lived around Asia a bit, but that you come back to Japan and now you happen to be working in travel in Japan. So how did that come about? Well, that, you know, I, so I, after university, I moved um, to Los Angeles and I lived in a place called Gardena, which is, there's right next to Torrance, where there's a lot of Japanese companies. And I was working for a Japanese um, freight forwarding company at the time. And my wife at the time had worked um, for a Japanese DMC in Los Angeles. And they were looking for, native English speakers to help um, with their growing business at the time. And so, you know, I saw it as an opportunity to kind of move up in a position with a uh, higher salary. So I, I jumped on it and I worked for, for a Japanese DMC for about four or five years in Los Angeles, mainly doing hotel purchasing, which got me to travel. And I was traveling across the U.S., you know, at a very young age. I was probably like 25 or 26 years old. And I was like going to all the major cities and just loving it. So that's what got me started into the biz, so to speak. And it just went on from there. Well, before we get into your kind of lesser known Japan spots, can you tell us a little bit about your work nowadays? What is it you're doing? I joined a company called Exo Travel in 2017, and at the time, this the company was doing well, but it wasn't doing as well as the expectations were. And Japan was a booming um, destination for inbound tourists globally, um, but Western countries were really coming on strong, and so there was a strong opportunity to turn this business around and. Uh, so I came in and reorganized the business to, to some degree and took advantage of a lot of excellent talent that we had. But essentially, EXO provides travel for foreigners coming to the country, so you're making all those arrangements, yeah? Yes, exactly. And speaking of operations, uh, we were chatting a bit before we started recording today, and you had mentioned you'd been on a number of familiarization trips so that the Cambodian, sorry, Cambodian, <laughs> the Japanese Tourism Bureau or whoever's in charge of tourism in Japan has been trying to promote different destinations around the country. So you were lucky enough to get to travel a bit around Japan while there was an absence of tourists. So hopefully that's going to help us out here today when you get to share some of your recommendations for places for people to visit. Yes, most definitely. I think we've been spoiled and, you know, I, this pandemic in that sense has been a good thing in the sense that the Japanese government typically would be spending this money on travel agents from overseas coming in, into Japan. Um, 
and they have a lot of money to spend. So uh, we've there's probably at any time of the month ten or twenty familiar fam tours going on across Japan over the last two years. So we've had staff going here, there, everywhere, and uh, it's it's been a boon to us in the sense that we've created a lot of new product that we can just roll out over time. Cool. Well, we've done a couple episodes talking about Japan a bit, and I think most of our listeners will know the main places, you know, Kyoto, Osaka, Hokkaido, Nara, etc. But we're here to get into some of these lesser known gems. And as I understand it, I know you've shared a Google map that I had to look at. And did you want to just work from like northeast down to southwest? Or how did you want to share these with us, Mark? Well, you can throw a dart and see which one it's closest to and we can go from there. Or uh, Okay. I'm going to start at the top of your list. Then we have Abashiri. Did yeah. I say that right? So I was. Th- that's my last trip, and that's why it, it's so topical for me. Uh, Abashiri's in the east side of Hokkaido, which is the main northern island, and I was there probably three or four weeks ago now, and it was freezing cold. It was minus twenty degrees Celsius, um, but it. The beauty of it is it's because it's on the Pacific side of Hokkaido, it has less snow and be- better weather in the winter, so blue skies for the most part. The trip was designed to show what can be done in midwinter at the, in that part of the country because basically Hokkaido is covered with snow the entire winter. So basically, um, we spent our trip Snowshoeing, sea kayaking, kayaking, uh, doing photo shoots of wildlife, and uh, trying to find the ice flows, which was the hardest part because we were just able to find stuff that was kind of stuck, um, bits and pieces that was stuck in in different parts of of the shore there. But uh, for the most part, the ice flows, which come down from Siberia, were a bit too far for us to kayak to. That had to be the coldest thing that I've ever experienced. We had these really lightweight, ultra-thin dry suits, which meant you had no protection from the elements other than not getting wet. And you're in this minus 20-degree temperatures with a good wind going, and and waves, surprisingly. We went out where where there was a lot of waves, and... uh, we froze our, our butts off, but it was fun because uh, you don't get to do it that often. And in fact, we did run into a few seals. Um, you can see killer whales in the area, which I'm That's glad we didn't see. Ask, that would yeah. scare me. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, we saw eagles. I mean, there's quite a bit of a variety of different animals that you wouldn't typically see um, anywhere in that part of Japan. And what was interesting to hear is one of the guides had actually worked in Alaska. And he was doing that type of wildlife and photography guiding for um, high net worth individuals. And he said the reason, uh, he, you know, high net worth, he was doing high net worth is because it takes quite a bit of money to get in the back country into Alaska because you got to take several flights. You have to have the right, you have to take all the right equipment. Everything, things got to be hauled in and out. There's little planes to get here and there and everywhere. Where in Hokkaido, it's right there. It's in your front door. 
So, you know, you don't have to go too far. It doesn't, it's not too expensive. The food is great. And, you know, it, everything's set up. So, it, you know, I, I never thought about it that way. I used to live in Hokkaido. But I never thought, yeah, yeah, right there. Um, in terms of being able to see that type of nature and, and those type of animals is, was such an easy thing to do. I, I never realized that was the case. So it was actually, a, it was a fantastic trip. Okay. Yeah. The photos look amazing. And again, I imagine Japan's very natural and has lots of wildlife. Most people think of Hokkaido, they think of skiing, I think, or, or scallops maybe. <laughs> or, or king crab. Uh, yeah. But no, there's actually, if we would have gone further up, um, at least it wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to see them in the winter, but there's quite a bit of bears as well. Um, so, oh. you know, and they're pretty big, not as big as grizzlies, but, you know, big enough to, to hurt somebody. And so, yeah, there's quite a bit out there that um, that really man hasn't ruined. Um, and one of the reasons for this is they they there are no dams on the the rivers or lakes up there. So the 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 salmon comes in every year. They can go all the way up. They can you know upstream into the lakes. Um, so, you know, because of that, the wildlife is, is quite natural compared to everywhere else. Cause most of Japan is dammed up and you don't see that type of activity, uh, wildlife activity in other parts of Japan. So quite interesting. And it doesn't look so hard. You, you can fly into Sapporo. Yeah. Cause I'm again, looking at a Google map and I've, we have all heard of Sapporo because of Sapporo beer, but how big of a city is that? Sapporo is about a million. Yeah. You know, I, Actually, to get to the northeast part, it's a different airport, which I can't pronounce. I'm sorry, but okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you can fly from Tokyo to there in about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes. Sapporo's about the same. But what I love about Sapporo is, and, and you know, this is my secret that I'm going to get out to everybody now, is that if you fly to Sapporo, you can get there in an hour and a half. You can stay there in midwinter for... You know, if you, as cheap as 60 bucks a night, you know, or you can maybe 15, 150 or, or 200 if you want. But you can spend a week there, rent a car for about 50 bucks a day. That's four-wheel drive and has snow tires in the winter. And you can hit anywhere from about 10 to 15 mountains within an hour to two hours drive. And so you can ski all the major ski resorts, including Niseko. And stay in Sapporo the whole time and eat really good food. Because if you go to the stand these where these ski resorts are, you're going to pay higher for accommodations. You're going to pay higher for food that's not always that good. Mm. And so, you know, the secret is to stay in Sapporo, rent a car, and just drive and take advantage of the situation. And, you know, driving in Japan, even a snowstorm is pretty safe. You can either go through the coastal route to Niseko or over the mountains. I, you know, the, going over the mountains is actually faster, but it gets pretty, you can go through some whiteouts and it can be pretty scary sometimes. So I recommend going ar around the coast, around the mountains into Niseko or up to Furano. That's an awesome tip. And you have so many places that you've shared with us here. We're going to have to do a second or third episode. So I think I'm just going to pick somewhere south on the next island, Mark, that I've never heard of. And I'm going to just say, I'm going to say it wrong, pardon me, but Kuroyu Onsen. Kuroyu, the reason I put that in there 
is so that's in the northeast what we call the northeast part of the main island of honshu uh tohoku is the japanese name which means northeast the northeast part's famous for hot springs and the reason i put okay. that into is it was a hot spring that has co-ed facilities which is very normal in in northeast part of 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 uh, really? honshu huh. so you know it's like you know if if you don't mind bathing in front of other people you know it's it's quite different i think nudity in japan is more accepted um even amongst different sexes and so it's quite common in that particular part of the country but it's weird sometimes you go into some places and it's all old men waiting for the first woman to come out and so uh. when it when the situations like that it's like for sure none of the women are going to come out but in a small hot spring like that uh when i went it was myself and a family of 3 uh so mother father and and daughter and uh you know it was just a very relaxed situation it was really chill um so but that's tohoku and that's why i put that up there um it, it was just a quick john into the local hot springs when i was traveling around that area uh which by the way i i bought a a jr east pass i think it was good for 5 days cost me about 130 bucks and i stayed in sendai which is like the central city kind of a major city of about a, a million people there in the tohoku region so it's one of the bigger cities in that area mm-hmm. and i just every day i took the train somewhere else and use that as a hub and and so any photos from you see in that area in that general area are, are from that trip uh so i went up to aomori and oirase which is like a jurassic park type um environment you know very green very mm. lush um we went to uh akita kakunodate which is an old samurai town really where the houses are really well maintained um cool excellent artisan um stuff going on there interesting story just quickly about samurai so um as they went into the meiji era the you know the government banned samurai so they had to give them um new things to do you know they couldn't go around killing people anymore so they industrialized the economy by giving them grants to do certain skills and that's where these this artist artisanship has really expanded during the meiji era and so in this particular area they're very famous for making things out of wood which are quite nice and quite expensive so and you see that throughout japan where they have specialties some people make pickles or you know some people make um steel pots uh so they were all granted something by the government to to make a living uh because they couldn't make a living being samurai anymore and what's that town called again kakunodate yeah, the the okay. prefecture is akita and, and the photos of a, a an artisan uh making yeah. something out of wood he was shining bark with a leaf right. which is the old way to do it He had to take wow. his shoes off and his socks off to do it which was interesting and we're like okay go for it <laughs> but uh <laughs> you know it was it was at his home in his living room sitting on a tatami mat um showing us how to how how he does it but uh, kakunodate is very worth going to 
And then in uh, Yamagata, I did a quick day trip to uh, Yamadera. Yamadera is a temple on top of mountain. So Yama's mountain, Dera's temple. And so you just climb up, I think it's like 1,500 and 2,000 steps up this mountain um, to to the top and a great view of the, the valley down below. So quick trip up and down, back, have soba at the bottom, and then grab the train back in the Sendai. Uh, I think it was an hour and a half or two hours by local train. But it's that kind of quick little thing you can do with these passes that gets you in and out of these different parts. Um, there's a there's another one that I, I uh, put on the map called Fukushima. It's called Ochi Juku. And it's, yep. it's yeah. this old post town. So as you can imagine, before cars and planes and... Um, People used to walk from post to post. All roads led to Edo or Tokyo type situations. So there's all these post towns that still exist. And that's one of them. And so you see these thatched roofs. And the whole town is basically old homes that are 150 years, 200 years old with these thatched roofs. And it's really nice. And it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's really well preserved. So it's, it's a bit of a tourist attraction, but it's, you know, it's, they've kept it as authentic as you can keep it. Um, but they do have their souvenir shops and all that, but it's worth seeing that type of town because, you know, these, these houses are really well preserved. Yeah, it's really great to follow along. Thanks again for making the Google map for us. And our listeners can go to the show notes at talktravelasia.com and check out the link to the Google map. It's great that there's little photos in somewhere your map upside too. down. Like <laughs> yeah, that's somewhere a little bit sideways. But that's fine because it definitely gives you the picture. And, uh, you know, with the train lines, it does really make everything really accessible. But to those little kind of off the beaten path places, renting a car is pretty straightforward in Japan. And they let us drive without too much hassle? Yeah, I would say so. As long as you have an international driver's license, um, you can rent a car. And nowadays, the navigation systems here, they have English as well. I don't think they have Chinese or any other languages, but they definitely do have English navigation. Um, or you can use Google. I mean, the Google Maps navigation system in Japan works really well as well. So my friends tend to use Google. Uh, but most of the rent-a-cars, not most, all rent-a-cars have navigation systems in Japan, so it's not an issue. I see you have Kanazawa marked. Uh, I've heard of that. Can you tell me what that is? I don't know why I've heard of it. It's on the Japan side, uh, Japan seaside of the country. So it's facing Korea, and it was called the Kyoto of the East for a long time because it's it's a very old city castle city um very nice castle with the samurai district that's still there and and well preserved very prideful you know you know the the conveyor belt sushi Mm. that was invented in kanazawa and i think they still make like they probably have like seven or eighty percent of that market share for for those systems that's not their pride and joy but um they're famous for doing gold inlay their their arts and crafts are, are quite high. The hand pr- painted kimono um, is is really well appreciated there. Uh, the food is different. The seafood is different because it's on that side of the sea. Kanazawa is definitely worth visiting. It's chain. It's 
the reason it's up and coming or was at the time is because they expanded the bullet train from Tokyo to that area, which made a huge difference. And the same bullet train takes you to some of the best skiing in that part of the country as well, um, through Nagano and Niigata. Um, so, you know, it's been a real boon for the ski resorts as well. Um, and then now they're trying to expand that all the way around to go back to Kyoto. So that'll make a difference. So really it's opened up quite a bit and it's made it much easier for our guests to get there. And I think, uh, and it's fast. It takes, I think, about two hours, two and a half hours to get there from Tokyo. Okay, I have a question. Because I remember, I remember once in some EXO training on Japan, perhaps, uh, something talking about the difference between the, the West Coast, which is facing the mainland Asia and, and a protected kind of bay, and the East Coast, which is Pacific kind of open ocean, and assuming there's probably big mountains in between. Is there like a, a drastic climactic change on the coast over there? And is there like, is it more of a summer destination then because of that? Or Well, I would say, so the East Coast, which is the, the Japan seaside, they get all the snow. So the big mountains stop the snow. So the winters on this side, on the west side, are with the east side. I'm sorry, just the opposite. On the east coast, our winters are, are mild and sunny. And on the west coast, which is on the Japan seaside, they have get tons of snow. And this year, their snow is like crazy. I think they're probably 10 meters on average in that wow. area, all the way up to, to Hokkaido. So, the, I mean, there are towns that are buried in snow. And sadly, there's not enough skiers this year because no foreigners can go. So they're just mm. clearing out snow every day for themselves just to survive. But uh, otherwise, it'd be, you know, the skiing would be great. Um, but because of COVID, obviously, that's dampened the situation. But yeah, there is climactic changes. But not so much, I would say, so your beach resort, beach life on the East Coast facing the Pacifics is is where you find a lot of the surfing, a lot of the beach sure. life, all of that. Yeah, there's a huge difference. But if you want something closer to Southeast Asia, you got to go to Okinawa, which is a warmer mm. climate. It's closer to Taiwan, closer to the Philippines, um, bluer waters, uh, more coral. Um, so the, the sand is different. Here, most of the sand is volcanic, so it's black and it's sticky. Where you know in Okinawa it's it's white sand and it's it's very fine, uh, so very very different in that sense. That's cool. Actually, Trevor and I were on a flight on December 10th, and we were having beers on the way to Tokyo. And we looked out the window, and we were right above Okinawa. It was quite cool. And we looked out and saw the beautiful waters down there. Mark, I'm really curious about three spots that you have marked a little ways out of Hiroshima that are all very close together and looks to be some fantastic bridges. Kochi, Oshima, and Takahara. Right. That little sea. So there's there's two major, well, three islands in the area. There's the Honshu, there's the Shikoku, and then there's Kyushu. So between Honshu and Shikoku, there's this inland sea called Seto. So in Japanese, we call Setouchi. And Setouchi is famous, is getting very popular. There's a lot, a lot of good PR in the overseas press. Originally for Naoshima, which is an art island. 
But what's even, I think, even better is the fact that you can ride a bicycle from one Honshu to Shikoku across several islands in a day. Yeah, I'm look, looks incredible. I'm looking at it now. So you can do all those bridges and islands in a day. Right. And But wow. why do it in a day? I mean, there's so much to see in between. And there's such an interesting culture there. So this area is famous for pirates back in the day because they controlled mm. that sea. And it was, a, it was a tough sea because it had very strange currents. And uh, so they knew the currents inside now. And they would charge attacks for people to come through and they would guide them through. And back then, um, this is before Tokyo uh, or Edo, where Kansai was the main trading area for Japan. They had to use that sea to get to Korea, China, and up to Hokkaido. So they would go, um, they would go towards Kyushu, come back around on the Kanazawa side, and then go up to Hokkaido trading salt and then bring fish and kelp and other things back down. And it was such a huge trade uh, that those people became quite wealthy. But they had to go through that pass, and that's where the pirates were owning the situation. So quite a, quite a bunch of interesting stories there. So every island's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit more, I wouldn't say it's tropical, but it's warmer environment so you, a lot of citrus you have olive trees there interesting enough so you can i mean there's and i think those were imported but quite a bit of citrus interesting uh, the wild boars are famous for swimming across these islands to different islands <laughs> i didn't know boars could swim but they're good swimmers apparently and in fact mm -hmm. when we were doing our cycling tour there we ran across this farmer who captured a boar uh, because they're pests. And uh, so they're, you know, he was taking it to slaughter, you know, because boar is actually, it's quite good. I don't know if you've ever had it, but it is quite tasty. I've had it. It's good. Yes. So, you know, there's good story. There's good food. Uh, the f seafood there is excellent. And, uh, you know, you've, you get these views that, uh, you know, when you get to a top mountain, you're looking at several islands. Um, and it's just so beautiful and peaceful. You've got all these old villages that were part of the trade routes that are still standing. They're quite well preserved. Um, there's a good history behind it. Takehara, if you guys like whiskey, you've probably heard of Nika whiskey. Well, mm -hmm. um, the guy who created Nika whiskey, Taketsuru, was from that Takehara town, and that's where he was born. And his family, they were in the wine industry. And so he got into the wine industry through the family, but he decided he was going to make whiskey. Mm. And they made, they made a TV show out of this, which was quite interesting, because he married a Scottish woman. He went to live in Scotland, met her, came back, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, these islands look amazing. We actually did uh, a magazine article in the magazine I worked for in Bangkok and on one of our art issues on one of those islands, the art island. Probably Naoshima, Naoshima. Yeah, yeah, Naoshima, that was it. Yeah, it was. It looked really cool. And these, these bridges look amazing because the, the island just to the south of it is, uh, what's Shikoku? Like you can drive all the way across from island to island to right. island until you get to this big major island, and then you could do a loop back around, and then there's another bridge over on the other end well, to go back to. 
So you've heard of the pilgrimage, the, the pilgrimage routes. Have you heard of that in Japan? So Shikoku is famous for uh, the, the temples. So the man who established Buddhism in Japan, or was a big influence in Japan, came, a, came through Shikoku and basically was responsible for all these temples that were built. And it became a huge um, um, pilgrimage route. I forget how many temples there are. I think it's 88 or something like that. But it's called Ohenro. And so they have these routes that go through all the mountain, along the beaches, everywhere through Shikoku to go to all these different temples. And and there's a photo, of, I think, in there of of, uh, of this priest walking through in his orange garb. But there was these people standing next to him coming in the opposite direction who are wearing this, these white clothes. And that's what the pilgrims wear. They they have this white garb and these hats that they wear. And usually it's it's retired people or people who want to atone for something. One of my friends just did it. His wife kicked him out of the house because he was gambling too much or something. So he's from Australia. He, he flew all the way over here to do it. And he's like coming back in, in March, I think. He said, hey, let's let's do it. Yeah, I'll do a couple of temples with you. But, you know... Because of that, those trails, and the fact that you have the cycling mix there, it's perfect for adventure travel. There was a famous clan who lost a battle, a uh, samurai clan who lost a battle. So they retreated to Shikoku, and they retreated into the deep mountainside, and they created these, these bridges out of vines. So this is a vine bridge that's been maintained over hundreds so cool. of years. Yeah. And they created these so that they could cut them down if they were ever chased. And so they just went as deep into Shikoku as they could into the mountaintops. And, and that was their escape route um, f from, you know, the people who were chasing them. And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting story. And, and you go and you there's only a few of these bridges left that are, are really well cared for. But it's something out of a movie. I mean, it's, you know, it's like Tomb Raiders or something like that. That mm. type of um, look and feel. And it's, it, you can see the, the, the work that's gone into that. And you can imagine there were 200 of these at one time. There's just so much to see and so much to do. It's Setouchi, which is Honshu and Shikoku and all the islands in between. And so there, there's some great stories. And tons of cruise, cruises that you can do as well. A lot of kayaking. Not so much wildlife, um, but, you know, a lot of good stories. They don't have castles so much, but they have these islands that were used as, like, forts uh, to defend these routes through, through, the, through the islands. And so there's some good stories around that as well. Well, that was the Ia Valley, and your photos look super cool. Look, there's still a ton of places that you've laid out in your map, but why don't we wrap up today by going to the far south, the place you mentioned already. Can you tell us a wee bit about Okinawa? So I was, I was telling Trevor earlier, Okinawa is probably the most eclectic um, destination in Japan in the sense that it originally the, the roots of Okinawa were more Chinese than they were Japanese. Uh, so it's closer to Taiwan, closer to China than it is to Japan. And so um, for hundreds of years, most of the trade was going on between China and, and Okinawa. 
And um, Japan took it over strategically because it was perfect for, for a Navy and, and stuff like that. And then after the war, the U.S. government took over the islands. And so why it's so eclectic is you have Chinese food, you have Japanese food, and you have American food. And people, you know, so you, you go into the streets and they have tacos and they have hamburgers and they have steak shops, you know. And then you have like very Okinawan food, which is like goat meat or, you know. Um, then you have the Chinese influence of noodles and they have these different um, markets where you can go and go through the market, pick what you want, take it upstairs and they cook it for you which is very Chinese, very Asian. It's not, not Japanese at all in that sense. And that's what makes um, Okinawa so interesting. But it's become a huge resort destination domestically as well as internationally, and may, more so uh, for Asian guests. So um, if you're into diving or you're into surfing, or snorkeling, it's, it's, it's that type of resort if you just want to chill on the beach. Uh, so the main island is where Naha is, which is the capital. And, you know, it's, it's, you travel north to south. Most of the resorts are in the middle of the, the island, where, like, Onazon is, is one of the kind of a luxury area uh, part of the main island, which uh, you'll find the Ritz-Carlton or the uh, Okinawa Marriott. Uh, there's a... Busena Terrace Hotel there. That's really nice. And then as you come down into the Naha area, you still continue to see a lot of resorts. And, you know, recently, I would say now that you're seeing Hilton's, you're seeing Marriott's, you're seeing Ritz-Carlton's, you're seeing all these international brands moving into that area, which didn't exist, Hyatt's, 10 years ago. So it's really changed dramatically. But I think the most interesting island is uh, Taketomi Island, which is this tiny island off of Ishigaki Island. So these are hard, hard names to remember, which are not, not necessarily on this map, um, which was, it, it still is, clearly reflects the old uh, style housing and villages, so it's been preserved. And it's probably one of the only places the U.S. forces didn't bomb because it's a World Heritage Site. And it's this tiny, tiny island. They don't allow cars on the island. You can rent a bicycle and get around the island. Really nice beaches. They have uh, ox-pulled carts uh, to get around to do a little bit of sightseeing. And they've got a new resort on it. But again, it's preserving the old type of lifestyle there. That's worth visiting. All of that you can get around from um, Ishigaki Island by ferry. So it's like a 20 or 30 minute ferry ride. Uh, Iriamote Island is also in that area, which is great for diving. Famous for hammerhead sharks, apparently. I've never, I'm not a diver, so I wouldn't know, but apparently a lot of people go to see that. Uh, so Okinawa has quite a bit of different tiny islands that you can visit um, and quite a strong diving culture. So, you know, I, I don't know if, I, the the only thing that I, I think is a challenge, to be honest with you guys, is Okinawa is expensive compared to, let's say, Southeast Asia. Mm. And the reason being is because the domestic market is so big there. And so, you know, they are 
and they put two, three, or four people in a room. So they have larger guest rooms, two or three beds, four beds sometimes. So they kind of stack them and rack them. And so because of that, they can charge more per room, per se. And so the inbound market tends to be two people. So, you know, depending on the season, it may not match and they may prefer domestic over inbound. You know, I think price point and food, Okinawan food is not famous. Like if if people know Thai food, right? Thai food's a global phenomenon versus Okinawan food is like really, I, I doubt either one of you can identify an Okinawan food. But uh, yeah, so that's the challenge I think is that there's just not, that's one of the missing pieces. I, I think food is always a big draw. Uh, it's not just the beaches. It's not just the lovely hotels. Yeah, and this Takitomi Island, which I put on the map as well, is closer to Taiwan than it is to Okinawa, which is not very close to the rest of Japan either. So I can imagine, yeah, getting to some of these more far-flung places, you'd really have to be on a mission. No, definitely. I, I think if you're going to Okinawa, you should just stay in Okinawa. I wouldn't worry about the rest of Japan. Because it's just too far. And there's too, and there's a lot you can do. If you just want to chill, that's a place to chill. Where the rest of Japan, you're going to be quite busy. Wow, Mark, you have uh, shared a lot of places I've never heard of. But what I really like is you shared some fantastic stories and some great history along the way. So thanks so much for sharing these places and sharing your time and the history and the tales. You've got me jazzed to go. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, great tips here. Hopefully we can come visit you soon. Well, I, I do want you guys to come, you know. I, I think Scott was here three years ago. I remember you went mountain biking or something. Yeah. Well, your next trip's got to be Setouchi. And Trevor, you yep. know, bring your surfboard. Hey, you know, it's been a long time that we've had this show, and I think that's our first Japan-specific episode. So I was really glad Mark was able to come on and drop some knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about Japan. I know we've talked about drinking there. We've talked about little tidbits here and there, but we haven't spoken, yeah, specifically in detail. I, I really loved his storytelling. The stuff about that rope bridge in Ia Valley was cool. All those bridges in Oshima. I'm pretty sure I've seen cycling trips through there before, which I'd be pretty excited about. And yeah, Hokkaido, I mean, he got me excited about it all. It did really, I mean, it's a big country, right? But it was good to hear about these places we've never heard about. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I recommend people go check out the Google map that Mark put together. We're really appreciative of him for doing that uh, because it really puts it in perspective. You know, like we recently did Tahiti and Maldives, which are these massive island nations that are spread out over thousands of kilometers. And I think most people don't really think of Japan as this island nation with thousands of kilometers of islands too but uh but it is and, and that google map really shows you that like there's a lot of diversity in your destination there in japan yeah it's a big place as you mentioned places with 10 meters of snow and skiing in the mountains and that northern hokkaido is right across from russia and then as you mentioned uh you know okinawa and stuff is close to taiwan and china and very tropical so yeah, I'm excited. I was We've known Mark for a while, but I was surprised at the quality of the storytelling in there as well. So there's a lifetime of travel to be done in Japan, and we hope you've all enjoyed it. Remember, Trevor and I fund this out of our own pockets, but luckily we have wonderful people called patrons who sponsor the show from as little as a couple dollars a month upwards. And patrons get a special little bonus episode or bonus video between these regular episodes. Sometimes we send postcards out to the people that donate a fair bit. So get on it. Go to patreon.com. 
sponsor the show and we give you thanks in advance. Trevor, why don't you close this one out? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks again, Mark, for being on the show. And thanks all of you for listening, particularly our patrons. We love your support. And, uh, you know, we still love to do it. So we're going to come back here in two more weeks and we're going to have another guest giving some great insight on travel across the region. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey, Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom in Cambodia? 